Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. Back in 2012, the University of Missouri's Journalism School held a panel discussion tied to the publication of the book Next Wave, America's New Generation of Great Literary Journalists. The book was published by the Sager Group, and Mike Sager and Walt Harrington co-edited the anthology. Sager and Harrington were on the panel along with four Missouri alumni who had been included in the book. All four of those panelists were men. That meant six men were talking to a group of 250 journalism students, the vast majority of whom were women. Here's Mike Sager. When we first spoke at Mizzou, doing this presentation before 250 women with one, two, three, four, five, six men, Myself, Walt Harrington, who were the editors, Tony Rehagen, um, Justin Heckert, Wright Thompson, Robert Sanchez, were all up there, you know, lecturing to these women. And, you know, that's when sort of the revolt happened and, and the women are saying, well, where are the girls? Two of the female students who led that revolt were Kaylin Ralph and Yana Dimkovich. They weren't just disappointed in the lack of female writers in Next Wave, there were only three women included in the book, but that panel also coincided with the announcement of the National Magazine Awards nominees, something women were also shut out of. Yeah, we basically approached him and uh, general feeling of, uh, by the way, the mostly uh, women in attendance to this conference mm -hmm. was that the question was circulated and it actually was posed directly to Mike, like, hey, dude, where are all the women? <laughs> That was Yana Dimkovich. She was on Gangry the Podcast along with Kaylin Ralph back in 2016. I respect Mike a lot because he didn't come back to us with a, a completely like condescending response like, well, here is where they are. His response was more productive and like, well, you know, let's do something about it, essentially. Mm -hmm. Let's do something about the lack of the visibility of women here. The initial result? The anthology Newswomen. 25 Years of Front Page Journalism, which the Sager Group published and Ralph and Demkovich collaborated on. I talked with the two young women back in 2016 on episode 44 of the podcast. They talked about their work on that book, but also about their magazine, The Riveter, which published only female writers. In short, we basically just wanted to show that women have been kicking ass in journalism, in print journalism specifically, of course, um, for a very long time. Uh, the issue that we found before this uh, anthology came into existence is that a lot of the time when we talk about the history of journalism or we talk about uh, who's been doing work for a long time and what that work has been, etc., um, a lot of the examples or a lot of the people we talk about happen to be men. Um, so the question there was, uh, where are these women? Were they there? The answer, of course, was yes. They were there. They were working just as hard, probably even harder, in fact, um, to write a variety of different types of stories for different types of outlets, um, uh, covering different types of topics. So um, Kaylin and I, our, our role was to curate and research a list in the first place. And of course, we found a lot more women than we can include in an anthology. So um, uh, hopefully it's kosher for me to say this, but I welcome another similar anthology to be published <laughs> featuring all the other women we couldn't include. Um, and uh, we basically just wanted to feature women covering 
a variety of different topics, like I mentioned before, um, uh, and women who had won a variety of different awards, et cetera. And the idea here is to give them a platform, to give them a space to exist. Newswomen was followed up two years later with The Stories We Tell, classic true tales by America's greatest women journalists. Ralph and Demkovich also worked on that book. It includes stories by writers and reporters like Joan Didion, Jeannie Marie Laskus, and Susan Orlean, among many others. Now, there's a third book. New Stories We Tell, True Tales by America's New Generation of Women Journalists, completes the Sager Group's trilogy of anthologies featuring great female journalists. And this time, Ralph and Demkovich are the editors. Included in the book are stories by writers like Pamela Koloff, Taffy Bratisser-Ackner, Vanessa Gregoriadis, and Gia Tolentino. There are 16 reporters featured in all. The book includes one story by each of the reporters, as well as an as-told-to piece based on interviews that Ralph and Demkovich conducted with the writers. It's in those short pieces that you get some amazing insight into how each of these women have become the reporter and writer that they are today. Here's Mike Sager again. Good writing is actually great reporting. The details bring the story to life on the page. That's Lizzie Presser. Uh, her, her story is, uh, she, she looks to, at an underground network of abortion providers. That story was originally published in the California Sunday Magazine. It's interesting, we had four pieces from there. I really love what they're doing. Four of the women included in the book have been guests on this show. Koloff and Gregoriadis have been on twice. Janet Reitman, the guest way back on episode 10, and Brooke Jarvis, who is here on episode 33, are also included in the book. So this is what I'm going to do with this episode. I'm going to go pull some clips from the interviews I've done with these women over the years so you can hear them talk about how they do what they do. In the meantime, go online and order New Stories We Tell. It's a book that is definitely worth reading. We'll return in one minute with clips from the interviews I did with Pamela Koloff and Vanessa Gregoriadis. This is Gangry the Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University, which grounds students in the 500-year-old Jesuit tradition of academic rigor and personal reflection while providing them with the critical skills needed to succeed in work and life. Students work with passionate faculty and have the chance to study abroad, participate in civic engagement, and conduct hands-on research across a variety of disciplines. It's also brought to you by the Department of English at Fairfield University, which is home to the digital journalism major, as well as an English major with concentrations in literature, creative writing, professional writing, and teacher education. For more information on the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English, go to fairfield.edu. Welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. Today I'm going to play some clips of interviews I've done with women reporters who are included in new stories we tell, true tales by America's new generation of women journalists, published by the Sager Group. First up is Pamela Koloff. She was a guest on the third episode of Gangry the Podcast way back in January of 2013, when we talked about our two-part Texas monthly series, The Innocent Man. That series won a National Magazine Award. 
She came back on the show in June of 2018 to talk about her two-part series, Blood Will Tell. Those stories ran at the same time on ProPublica and in the New York Times Magazine. Koloff was one of the three women included in Next Wave. In New Stories We Tell, her story, The Beating of Billy Ray Johnson, was included. That story ran in Texas Monthly in January of 2013, shortly after she visited the podcast for the very first time. I'm going to play a little bit of our talk about Blood Will Tell. That piece tells the story of Joe Bryan, a former principal in Texas who was convicted of murdering his wife. Many believe he was wrongfully convicted because of blood spatter analysis, which has come under fire as not being scientifically reliable. This was Koloff's first project for ProPublica and the New York Times. So I was really interested in finding a story that illustrated what I saw as some of the potential problems of this type of forensic science um, and of forensic science in general right now. Uh, And so I learned about Joe's case. There's a a group um, in Austin that meets quarterly called the Texas Forensic Science Commission, and they are a state body that looks at um, various cases around the state where there may have been forensic science used to win convictions that was questionable in some way. And um, I saw that the commission was looking at Joe's case and started reading about it and was just immediately hooked, I think, for reasons that will become apparent for anyone who reads the first section of the story. Um, And so I went from there. What is it about these types of stories that, um, that, that grabbed your attention? I think, um, I mean, I've tried to find a through line in a lot of the work I've done in the past 10 years. I, I don't know that there is one, but I think that one theme that I'm really interested in is what do ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances do? And so I, I was just really interested in that in Joe's case and um, was happy that it sort of provided an excuse for you know, there, there are a lot of interesting characters and sense of place and that that provided a good way of looking at some science stuff that I thought otherwise readers might not be that interested in, frankly. Mm-hmm. When, you, when you decided that this was going to be a project uh, that you were going to work on, what was the first thing you did as a reporter? Oh, my gosh. There were so many things. <laughs> um, there were, well, first of all, it's a 33-year-old case, so mm-hmm. if you can imagine the challenges that go with that. Um, the first thing I was trying to figure out was who was alive, and actually many of the main players either have passed away or um, would not talk to me. And just as an example, um, at both of his trials, there were two prosecutors, two defense attorneys. Of those four attorneys, only one is still living. Mm-hmm. So um, there was just a lot... There was a lot of reporting that normally I would have liked to have done that was beyond my reach. So um, I sort of just made a a giant list of, like, here are all the people I would love to talk to, and then went about trying to track those people down. Um, And that was sort of combined with trying to find all the different pieces of the case file, which was very challenging. But once I did... um, and I sort of was able to look at, at the police investigation through all these different uh, police reports. 
it, it quickly became apparent that um, at the very least something was was not good about the investigation. What um, you you utilize public records a lot um, <laughs> in your reporting, you know, police reports and court records and that type of thing. Uh, and I think a great deal of this story came from that. I think that's obvious because some of the mm-hmm. people had died. Um, what's that process like for you as a reporter um, in Texas as well? Because, you know, every state has their own rules when it comes to public records. Um, is is it easy or hard to get those types of records in Texas? And and beyond that, once once that big package of material shows up, you know, in your office, um, I'm kind of curious, like what what your mindset is like when that finally shows up. Yeah, it's like Christmas, right? It's <laughs> right. When you get all the documents. Um, you know, I because I've worked in Texas almost exclusively for so long, I can't. I, I don't feel like I would be a good authority to speak about what it's like in comparison to other states. But generally, I've had I've had pretty good luck. Um, getting the things that I needed. One of the most important things is that Texas, unlike California, allows reporters to go uh, interview inmates in person, Mm -hmm. Um, though they have greatly restricted that in the past couple of years. But, um, you know, I was able, for example, to correspond as much as I wanted to with Joe Bryan. I was able to visit him every three months. So there was something there. But as far as finding everything, I mean, really, I just had to figure out where everything was. And when I finally figured out that everything was in this little town called Comanche at the county courthouse, um, that was where Joe's retrial in 1989 took place. And when I finally realized that everything was there, or not everything, but many of the things I needed to look at were there. It was just a matter of getting to it. And then you know, there's sort of this dance that I've done a million times with the district clerk at courthouses about I'm a reporter and I want to look at X. And um, luckily, this district clerk was nice to me and <laughs> let me spend the day looking through things. Um, but when, when I saw what was there, I realized it would be possible to tell a story that was from so long ago in a really vivid way mm-hmm. because people had had written statements within, you know, sometimes hours of things that had happened. And honestly, the statements were so good in some cases, I thought that they might be at least as helpful as interviewing someone more than three decades later about what they remembered about it. Yeah. How long does it take you to read through just like a court file or, or something like that? I would imagine it takes a long time to go through it with a fine tooth comb that is necessary to locate those those types of things right well i think the thing that's i I really would love to hear a lawyer speak about this but i think one of the things that's interesting about reading through the trial transcript or looking through a case file is there's things that don't mean anything to you on the first or second Mm. or maybe even third pass that once you've really like understood the facts of the case if you're lucky enough to have time to do that um, you start making connections that you wouldn't have otherwise. So uh, it's, I think it's an ongoing process. I mean, I, I each of the trial transcripts was 2,000 pages. I needed to read those. Um, I needed to read through. I don't. I mean, there were so many. I can't even tell you how many pages of uh, Texas Ranger files and Clifton Police files. Uh, but 
it was sort of an ongoing process because mm-hmm. I generally give all that sort of a quick read the first time. And then when I know more, when I talk to people, I go back and give it uh, several more read throughs, if that makes sense. Right, right. Um, and that took time. And then there was there was material that was hard to get, despite everything. Uh, the biggest public records battle I had, interestingly enough, was on um, photos of the blood-spattered flashlight that was mm, at the center of right. this case. You chose something to do something that was incredibly interesting, uh, and this shows up in in the the first the first half of of part two, because you signed up for a class in bloodstain pattern analysis. Um, why mm-hmm. why did you do that? Well, um, so my my lead into the story, as I mentioned, was this type of forensic science, and I I just had a lot of questions as a layperson. There were things that didn't make sense to me about it. Uh, I had not taken science since high school, and so it had been a long time, and um, I read the main textbook that a lot of people use to do bloodstream pattern analysis, and I still didn't, I wasn't grasping these issues, and so I thought, well, maybe it'd be helpful just to go get the training, which is only a week out of my life, that seems doable, Um, but it also connected directly to the story because the expert witness in, in Joe's case was a police officer who received exactly, not exactly, but very close to the training that I had. It was a week-long class at a um, police department, just like I did. So I signed up for a class that was taught by the consulting firm of the man who had taught the expert in Joe's case. And I spent a week at the Yukon, Oklahoma Police Department um, learning how to analyze bloodstains with a lot of police officers. I, I'm really curious about about what that was like. Um, in so many ways, it's almost like immersion reporting uh, at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, what was, I mean, what was that like? Because uh, I, I think I read that you you were open when you when you signed up or, or applied for the class that you were a reporter. Um, were you were you the only non police officer there? And what, can, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, I I didn't explain this in the story. I did in the newsletter right, that I did right. at ProPublica, but. Um, I identified myself as a reporter from the very beginning when I first emailed the consulting firm that teaches these classes and, you know, used my ProPublica email address and obviously my real name. Um, and then I, I also identified myself as a reporter when the class started. And yes, I was the only uh, non-law, enfor- non-law enforcement slash forensic scientist in the room. And um no one, you know, to, to the credit of the people in my class, no one really cared. It, it wasn't a source of conversation or a lot of questions. Nobody Googled me, <laughs> um, which kind of surprised me because I'm in a room full of investigators. Right. But uh, if they did Google me, let me just say it, they didn't share that with me. Um, and so I felt like I had a pretty good view of how it is that police officers are trained in this discipline. And One of the things that interested me is in the course of researching this, I found that the expert in Joe's case who qualified to testify, um, who only had had a week of training, was not an outlier. There actually have been police officers all over the country who testified as expert witnesses in criminal cases who've had 40 hours of training in this very, very complicated uh, discipline that involves physics and trigonometry and... um, so I, I 
I was going with the intent of, is it possible? Like, can you really take, can you really spend five days in a classroom and walk out and be able to say when someone's life is on the line, yes, I know what happened at this crime scene. So that, that was sort of how that all started. Mm. There's, um, you know, and, and you, you kind of come away with a lot of like almost a better understanding of maybe it's like some of the things that that, that expert was testifying about that were not covered in, in the class that you took as well. Right. So what's interesting is when I when I pitched my editors on taking this class, I actually envisioned it as a separate, shorter story mm-hmm. that would sort of accompany the main narrative. And I thought the narrative would just be purely narratives, and then there would be these sort of satellite stories that we could run along with it or after it, which ProPublica does a lot mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in their series. Um, and then in the course of writing it, when I was trying to actually explain what this science was, I thought, you know, like I had all these really boring explanations for it. And I thought, well, it would be a lot more engaging if I just like put the class in the story, which would involve introducing myself as a character, which is not my comfort zone. But I, I figured like uh, that way, as I'm learning the science, like so too can the reader. Mm-hmm. And then we can evaluate it together. That was Pamela Koloff talking about her two-part series, Blood Will Tell, on this podcast back in June of 2018. Next up is Vanessa Gregoriadis. Like Koloff, Gregoriadis has been on the show twice. Also like Koloff, she was included in Next Wave for her profile of Britney Spears. She was on Gangry the Podcast in November 2014, when we talked about a piece she wrote on Justin Bieber, among other things. Then she came back on the show in November of 2017 to talk about her first book, Blurred Lines, Rethinking Sex, Power, and Consent on Campus. We talked very briefly on her first visit on the show about a story she had written for New York Magazine about campus sexual assault. That story, a very different sexual revolution on campus, is a story that was included in News Stories We Tell. Here's that short bit of conversation we had. You wrote a story uh, in September, or it was published in September. Uh, it, was, it was called The Revolution Against Campus Sexual Assault. Can you talk about like, what type of research you had to do before you actually started going out and talking to people for that story? Sure. I didn't do a ton. Um, I did read a bunch of the New York Times articles, some of which were specifically on the people I was interviewing. Um, had I known at the time that the Huffington Post is like a one-stop shopping for all things sexual assault, mm-hmm. I probably would have gone just right there to read everything because um, there's a reporter there who's like covered this like gangbusters mm-hmm. for the last year or so. Um, but I don't think I was aware of that at that point or I didn't, I was kind of moderately aware and didn't really follow up on it enough. Mm-hmm. Um, I read a bunch of stories by Katie Baker in BuzzFeed um, and she was at, I think she was at Jezebel before. Um, she's a good reporter covering uh, sexual assaults. And, um, you know, a bunch of stuff out of the Columbia Spectator um, to see what was going on on campus, the way the student newspaper was covering it. But there was still a large learning curve Mm -hmm. on that story because 
you know, there's been so much coverage of sexual assault, but it, it's it's a the, the actual like release and the administrative stuff around it is a little hard to understand. Like, what is Title IX? When did it start to cover sexual assault? Why are all these people filing now? You know, what what does it mean to open an investigation? When does the investigation stop? Like, um, you know, what what is it that schools are supposed to be providing to students that students are saying they're not? Like, what is it exactly? What's at, what's at stake here? And the other issue is that what, you know, what schools are supposed to be providing and what activists want the schools mm-hmm. to provide can be different things, too. So I think that, you know, there's a level on which that's like a, a you, know, you need like a little seminar. Uh, you wrote a story uh, in September, or it was published in September. Uh, it was it was called the Revolution Against Campus Sexual Assault. Can you talk about like what type of research you had to do before you actually started going out and talking to people for that story? Sure, I didn't do a ton. Um, I did read a bunch of the New York Times articles, some of which were specifically on the people I was interviewing. Um, had I known at the time that the Huffington Post is like a one-stop shopping for all things sexual assault, mm-hmm. I probably would have gone just right there to read everything. Because um, there's a reporter there who's like covered this like gangbusters mm-hmm. for the last year or so. Um, but I don't think I was aware of that at that point, or I didn't. I was kind of moderately aware and didn't really follow up on it enough. Mm-hmm. Um, I read a bunch of stories by Katie Baker in BuzzFeed. Um, and she was at, I think she was at Jezebel before. Um, she's a good reporter covering uh, sexual assaults. And, um, you know, a bunch of stuff out of the Columbia Spectator to see what was going on on campus, the way the student newspaper was covering it. But there was still a large learning curve mm-hmm. on that story because, you know, there's been so much coverage of sexual assault, but it, it's, it's a the, the actual, like, release and the administrative stuff around it is a little hard to understand. Like, what is Title IX? When did it start to cover sexual assault? Why are all these people filing now? You know, what what does it mean to open an investigation? When does the investigation stop? Like, um, you know, what what is it that schools are supposed to be providing to students that students are saying they're not? Like, what is it exactly? What's at, what's at stake here? And the other issue is that what, you know, what schools are supposed to be providing and what activists want the schools mm-hmm. to provide can be different things, too. You know, I'm on a college campus, so um, it's a little bit more kind of hits home, I guess. But you it, you never really know what's going on, even when you're on a college campus, I think, in terms of what a college is supposed to do. Um, obviously, I'm not at an administrative level, but, you know, it's just kind of very convoluted type of, you know, what gets reported and what doesn't. I think that there's it's, it's really about, like, if there's a good student journalism right. like program on campus. I mean, I think a lot of the coverage is much better at schools that have good journalism programs. But then also if there's students on the campus who have decided to be activists right. and hook up with this, like, national network, they can really propel their story into the media, mm-hmm. which is what happened at Columbia. That story paved the way for Gregoriadis to report and write blurred lines. 
The book was published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt in 2017. Gregoriadis spent a great deal of time on college campuses talking to students. This is from our talk two years ago, when she described how she was able to get college students to talk about such a taboo subject. As I was reading this book, um, I, you know, I was constantly struck by how you were able to get students to open up uh, and talk about stuff that we don't talk about as a society. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how, how do you, how do you go, how do you do that? Well, okay. I mean, first of all, you know, I mean, I'm a reporter, right? This is what I do for mm-hmm. a living. So, um, there's some degree to which I'm, I'm really like, this is really how I make my money, mm-hmm. right? Um, is connecting with people doing during in-person interviews, and um, knowing how to comport myself to get the ultimate best answers that you can get out of somebody um, in that kind of setting. So, you know, that's, like, how I put food on my table, Mm -hmm. right? Like, I am kind of known for profiles where um, people say a lot of really interesting stuff and (laughs) maybe stuff they shouldn't say, and they say it to me, but they wouldn't really say it to a different reporter because that other reporter might ask questions in the wrong order mm-hmm. or might give them some sense that they're not really being heard or might just ask really boring questions. So I really kind of pride myself on that and consider myself, you know, a reporter first, like a face-to-face, good, kind of let's break it down in person together um, kind of reporter of people. So I do think that, you know, this is um, talking to students, you know, was kind of really working to my strengths. Mm-hmm. Um, as a practical matter, I mean, I did do what I just said, which is like, if there was a swipe card to get into a dorm, I just waited for somebody to open the door. Right. And then I went in, you know, I didn't, um, I mean, I didn't tell any corporate communications department Mm -hmm. that I was a reporter on campus to interview students. I didn't go to a conference room. I didn't call um, students, uh, you know, student groups beforehand and say, okay, you're from the men's project group. Um, I'm a reporter coming to campus. I would like to meet you in the campus center at one o'clock sharp to have a 45 minute interview with Mm -hmm. you. You know, I just kind of wandered into the campus center and looked around the room and said, like, who looks interesting to me here? Like, who looks dynamic? And I, you know, I think it's pretty easy when you get to a room to see, like, well, who who seems verbal? Who's, like, gesticulating wildly with a friend? And everybody at the table is looking at him and interested in what he has to say. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the person I want to talk to. Um, because that's going to give me the most dynamic quotes and the least prepackaged ones. Right. So that's the way I did a lot of the interviews. I really just went to college campuses like pure shoe leather, nothing set up beforehand, no interview set up beforehand, and walked around and said, hey, I'm a journalist. I'm writing a book about sexual assaults on campus. I want to ask you some questions. And definitely some students were like, that's weird, and, like, didn't <laughs> want to talk to me, you know? Right. And then other students 
were kind of like, oh, like, let me remember the thing I heard from orientation right. and be like, sexual assault's really terrible. I'm pro-survivor at all times. Um, you have to believe the women. Sorry, I have to go to class. Right. You know, there were definitely kids who were just kind of parroting back what they mm-hmm. had heard. And it was clear that they hadn't really thought through it, but they just had heard that this is what should be their opinion on the subject. Um, and then they had to go to biology class, you know. Right. But there were a lot more kids who were like, oh, that's really interesting. Like, who are you? Where'd mm-hmm. you come from? Oh, well, I think this. You know, when I was a senior, I thought that and never really thought about this before. But since I've been here, my friend confessed to me this story. Or we had this crazy thing happen on our dorm hall with a girl who was assaulted and really changed my mind. And, you know, so I did tons and tons of interviews like that. And then um, we'll kind of decide, like, okay, well, who do I want to follow up with? Mm-hmm. Um, either do I want to go back to that campus and see that person again or maybe just check in via email, um, talk on the phone. You know, there's probably, I mean, I interviewed about 120 students in the end. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think there are probably about 20 students who are really developed characters in the book. Right. And most of those people I had more than one conversation with. Mm-hmm. You know, I did follow up with them, even if they only appear in the book once, I definitely followed up to get more detail or see how they were doing, you know, um, a place like Wesleyan, which is a through line and, you know, a a story that I returned to the kind of closure of the frat at Wesleyan that happened while I was there that, um, you know, I went to Wesleyan probably six, six or seven times Mm -hmm. to report the book. That was Vanessa Gregoriatis back in November, 2017, talking about the reporting of her book, Blurred Lines, Rethinking Sex, Power, and Consent on Campus. We're going to take a very short break. When we come back, we'll have some clips from Janet Reitman and Brooke Jarvis. This is Gangry the Podcast. Did you know that you can listen to every single episode of Gangry the Podcast on our website? Just go to gangrythepodcast.com and you can listen to interviews with amazing writers and reporters like Pamela Koloff, David Gran, Janet Reitman, Tom Junot, Eli Saslow, Ben Montgomery, Landa Gregory, and so many more. Just go to gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. On this show, I've been playing some clips of interviews I've done with women reporters who are included in New Stories We Tell, True Tales by America's New Generation of Women Journalists, published by the Sager Group. Janet Reitman is included in the book for her story, The Children of Isis. That piece ran in Rolling Stone in 2015. I talked with her on the podcast in October 2013 about her profile of Boston Marathon bomber Yohar Sarnev. If you'll remember that story, or at least the way the Rolling Stone put a somewhat dreamy photo of Sarnev on the cover, was somewhat controversial. But it did an amazing job of showing how someone who looked so innocent could do something so horrific. Here's Reitman talking about how she started reporting that story. It's really well reported as well. Uh, Can you talk about the reporting? Um, Like, how did you start? 
And then uh, how did you get to the end? I started by, I came to Boston the day after he was arrested. And um, to be very honest with you, I, I spent the first three days you know, kind of having a, a bit of a breakdown in my hotel room because it was so, I just really was like, I don't have a clue as, you know, how I'm going to do this. Nobody wants to talk. This is not like going to a small town. This is, a, you know, this is a city. Um, the, the major media have already been through and have intimidated basically everyone um, and had, have left very bad tastes in a lot of people's mouths. So it wasn't something that, um, uh, I, I wasn't going to be able to call, say, a teacher or, or a student or some or a college friend and say, or you know, walk up to them and be like, "Would you mind talking to me?" and have them be like, "Yeah, sure," because no, their their reaction would be to like hide in the bushes. Um, and you know, which which apparently was happening actually at at the college when mm -hmm. the kids were, <laughs> were were hiding from the media in the bushes because they had been so aggressive with them. Um, but uh, ultimately, I did a lot of, you know, online um, emailing. I reached out to lots of people through Twitter, through Facebook, um, through other sort of social networks. I, to be very frank, I have a, a cousin who's fantastic who just graduated from BU and was a journalism major and was also in a fraternity. And he was in the same fraternity as a kid who knew Jahar from college. They're different colleges, but it's the same fraternity. And he reached out through his fraternity network and helped. He wanted to help me. On the, he was like my intern on the story because he, he wanted to learn. I wanted to help him learn journalism, and he wanted to learn. So um, so he did some work for me. And, and that, he was really helpful in helping me like, just make a couple of connections to, um, to kids who I might not have been able to connect with otherwise because I didn't have those networks. Um, so that's a little secret. Right. But uh, <laughs> but that was one person. You know, he, he got he got um, he he helped out with a couple of things. But I mean, for the most part, it was it was just um, you know, sort of the 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 twenty first century version of working the phones, which is you work Facebook and Twitter, mm -hmm. and um, and I. And also worked some of the of the adults, like you know, I I knew there were there were a couple of stories that came out very quickly um, in the newspaper that mentioned um, a, a coach who had been close to Jahar, this guy named Peter Payak, and a a teacher or a retired teacher from the high school named Larry Aronson, um, who happened to live across the street, and they had been quite vocal, and they're both very well connected in Cambridge, and so I I spent a lot of time with them and, and they were um, they were very good on a million levels in terms of connecting me to others but also just explaining things about the community and, and about the general milieu um, and and it's just sort of one of those things where one thing leads to another there was a, a, a one young man who I I had heard about and who did agree to meet with me off the record and he had been a very good friend of Jars and he um, he told me about this other group who were the really close, close friends of Jahar's that nobody knew about because none of those people had wanted to talk to the media. And he suggested that I just keep coming back and at some point they would be willing to talk. So I, I made a number of trips to Boston and, and one of them was, I think it was the second or third time I went, um, 
one of Jahar's friends, a guy named Robel Philippos, was arrested um, and uh, and charged with basically lying to federal officers. He, he had known um, that Jahar's backpack, he was a friend from high school and from college, and he had known that the backpack, which had some of you know the empty fireworks containers and stuff, had been thrown away by another friend, and he had been sort of involved t very tangentially in some of that, just in terms of being around um, in the aftermath with these friends. And he, uh, so he was arrested and he was arraigned. And I went to that initial hearing, and so did a number of these very close friends, and so that I met them there, and just basically said, you know, hi, here's, you know, here's who I am, here's what I'm wanting to do. Um, there was this one girl in particular who um, who seemed very sweet, and I just gave her my card, and I said, you know, why don't you just do a Google and look at look? That's what I generally tell people. Mm -hmm. I'm like, don't when you just like read what I've written. I'm not going to give you a, you know kind of a, a whole you know bullshit line. I'm just going to you know this is what I am. This is who I am. This is what I do. This is our magazine. You understand the magazine. Read what I've written make a decision, here's my contact info. And she did, and she got in touch with me about a week and a half later and said that, you know, wow, you know, I love your work, and and wouldn't it be great if we could all get together, a whole group of our friends, and sit around and talk with you? <laughs> <laughs> Which is like, you know, a reporter's, that's, that's your dream. With, with teenagers, that is your absolute dream great. because it's very hard to, to interview um especially teenage boys, it's very hard to, to interview young men one-to-one -one, um, on these kinds of, it just, it, it, they're uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's, a, it's not every, I mean, the first kid that I met that, that, you know, my first, you know, entry into this group this, by this first kid, he was, an, he's a young man and he's very, very poised and was terrific. But not every 19-year-old guy is like that. And oftentimes they are much better in groups. They can, kids kind of feed off of one another when they talk you get their you just you just get them going that was janet reitman talking about her story jahar's world which ran in rolling stone in 2013 she's included in new stories we tell for another rolling stone story the children of isis finally we get to brooke jarvis new stories we tell includes jarvis's story unclaimed that piece ran in the California Sunday Magazine in December 2016 and was the winner of the Livingston Award in National Reporting. Back in 2015, I talked with her about a couple of stories she had written, including one headlined Homeward. That story is a profile of a young man who was raised in a small village in a remote part of Ecuador who had been sent to the United States for school, mainly so he could learn enough to return home and save his own people. How, how did you report the story? How long did you report the story? Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. It was it was an unusually fast turnaround for a print magazine story, I would say. Um, I found, uh, you know, a little a, a blurb about him in the Seattle Times that was pretty old, um, but had enough in it to make me think, you know, there's definitely more of a story there. Um, and so I, you know, I found him on Facebook. I got in touch, we went to get coffee, and he told me that he was going back to Ecuador for Christmas in, I think it was just a, a month, maybe even less. Uh, so that that was fast turnaround for getting, you know, getting the magazine on board, doing the planning. Um, and then I, I went and met him there. 
uh, with and and his wife and daughter were there, and a photographer came, and we spent um, we spent about a week in the village, um, and then I also you know did a lot of interviewing him and interviewing people that he had known in Seattle. Uh, were there any challenges with with interviewing uh, on his on his homeland? Yeah, it was it was tricky. Um, not everybody speaks Spanish, uh, so there were cases where I would have to get. And, and it wasn't like I could hire a translator. You know, there are not many Kofan speakers in the world and certainly none that wouldn't have their own kind of role in the story in some way. Um, but I, you know, there, there were enough people who had, who had both languages that I was able to get them to help translate mm. if I was speaking to people who didn't speak Spanish. Mm. But a lot of people, you know, Hugo's family speaks Spanish quite well. Um, there's, for example, the shaman in the story, uh, Mauricio. He, um, his Spanish is not, is not as good, but it's, it's enough that I was able to confirm things with him directly and then um, get translation for the, you know, sort of the nuances of what he was saying. Mm-hmm. Oh, when did you learn Spanish, and how has that helped you as a reporter? It's been surprisingly helpful. I need to probably brush up on it. I mean, I you know I took I actually was a, a double major in Spanish in college, um, and I have I have family in South America, so I've traveled there a lot. Uh, what, what was your other major? English. English. Okay. Yeah. Um, was there a, in terms of writing uh, this the story? Um, were there any challenges? Uh, it sounds did you you wrote it really quickly as well. The reporting was short. Uh, did you have to write it quickly as well, or uh, what were really some of the challenges that you that you encountered? You know, like pulling everything together. Um, yeah, it was it was moving quick. I think my my deadline was um, you know a week after I got back from Ecuador, uh, and there you know in that time I had some additional reporting to do so. It, it was a, a very quick turnaround piece as these things go. When you're, but, wor- oh, sorry. Oh, it just, you know, some, some pieces are harder to, for me anyway, you know, the, the structure is what kills me and slows me down endlessly if I don't see clearly how it's going to work. And for this one, it was fairly straightforward to, well, I mean, we, we did change it around, um, in a few times, but you know, you, you have the two stories, really three stories. You have present day Ecuador, four stories, present day Seattle, and then the past in Seattle and the past in Ecuador, mm-hmm. um, that you have to, you have to weave together. That was Brooke Jarvis talking about homeward. Her California Sunday magazine story unclaimed was included in new stories. We tell once again, I'd recommend that you purchase new stories. We tell It's a great collection of narrative journalism, all written by amazing female reporters. It's essentially the third book in a female reporter anthology trilogy published by the Sager Group. The first two books were Newswomen, 25 Years of Front Page Journalism, and The Stories We Tell. If you like the amazing insight you heard from Koloff, Gregoriadis, Reitman, and Jarvis, you can always go to our website. That's www.gangritapodcast.com and listen to the full episodes. Every episode we've ever done is available for free on the website. 
Once more, that's at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Gangry the Podcast is produced in Donnarumma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by Fairfield University's digital journalism program and the College of Arts and Sciences. Our music comes from Audionautics. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.